4: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Nam June Paik was a groundbreaking video artist whose explorations of the new medium were marked by a nomic humor and a focus on the beauty that could be extracted from the machines that made television. At a time when electronics were largely the province of Cold War militaries, Pig said that someday artists will work with capacitors, resistors, and semiconductors as they work today with brushes, violins, and junk. SF MoMA has a new retrospective of his work and will discuss his legacy. And for your weekend planning, we'll be joined by the Chronicle's Soleil Ho to talk about picnic foods and spots. That's all next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the first retrospective of his work on the West Coast, SFMOMA's current exhibition on electronic art pioneer Namjoon Paik features more than 200 works from the artist whose five-decade career changed the way we look at screens, which is, as far as I can tell, the main activity of humanity now. Perhaps the most acclaimed video artist in the world, Pake's early work changed perceptions of television, video, and the boundary between art and spectator through its integration of camera, video, music, and performance. And we're joined today by two contemporary artists and a scholar of Pake's work to discuss the remarkable moment when video was new and his legacy. First, I'd like to introduce Kota Izawa, an artist living in the Bay Area, associate professor of film at California College of the Arts. Welcome, Kota. Hi, thanks for having me. We have Peter Sax Colopy, a historian of technology and university archivist at Caltech. Welcome, Peter.
3: Thanks for having me, Alexis. And
4: finally, uh, Rhonda Halberton, another artist here in the Bay, as well as assistant professor of digital media art at San Jose State University.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
4: So, uh, you know, it's easy when you're looking at a major artist's retrospective like this, to lose sight of the actual fact of a person's life and existence. Uh, and so I was hoping we could start with you, Kota, to talk about what Peik was like, because as I understand it, you were a student of his.
5: Uh, yeah, I was uh, very lucky in my early studies at the Kunst Academy in Dusseldorf to uh, join his video class. And uh, his video class was a really groundbreaking event, was Maybe the first video class offered in an art school. Back then, art schools focused more on painting and sculpture, and uh, that video class was uh, quite special. Yeah, I had the luck to um, brush with his <laughs> um,
4: yeah. genius. It, yeah, what what um, what was it like? What was the class like? I mean, were there just? I imagine there's just television sets all over the place, and cables, yeah, and wire, and, and yeah, cameras. It took
5: place. It took place in a video lab that was built at the art school. Um, you know, back then it was not <laughs> Apple computers. Maybe there was one Apple computer, but it was mostly these like chunky umatic tape machines and big chunky cameras. Uh, class also in Dusseldorf is uh, quite different from a class at an art college in the US. It's much less academic. We met, you know, on a whim. We didn't have a class schedule. It was more kind of a loose association of young artists that met with an older artist, Namjoon Paik.
4: And what was Paik's actual presence like? Like, what was he like if he were standing in front of you?
5: Uh, Okay, he was uh, his outer appearance. And I think people would agree who have met him personally was very often disheveled. <laughs> like he always looked he, like he just got off the airplane and didn't have time to shave and just grabbed the first clothes out of his uh, suitcase. But that was his style. He looked the same at an opening of a museum show. <laughs> and then his spirit was just very generous, uh, very kind, very funny, but also quite radical and, I would say like punk rock.
4: Huh. Peter, um, can you take us back to the sort of moment where Pike really explodes onto the scene in the 1960s when video making equipment is starting to really become available, um, at least to a, a, a small group of artists and other folks?
3: Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll say to preface this, one of the things I think the exhibit conveys really well is Pike's earlier career as a composer and as somebody who was sort of expanding music into performance art and into visual performance as well. And so you get the sense um, that he was adding video to this range of artistic practices that he already had. Um, And he started adding video um, with manipulations of televisions, so you can see in the exhibit him adding magnets to televisions in 1963, um, but it's in 1965 that he becomes one of the first artists to buy his own video recorder and to start recording his own video um, in a way that only people working in the television industry had been able to do before. Um, And uh, that's a practice that really spreads from from Pike being one of the first over the rest of the 1960s and early 1970s to become uh, an artistic movement of this new medium of video which can be manipulated electronically so that you can produce images that don't look like anything you would see on broadcast television, um, which is not inexpensive, but still accessible to far more people than a professional television studio. Um, And a lot of the sort of enthusiasm that Pike and the communities around him have for this technology is about uh, more people making their own television and broadening the participation of this technology.
4: And, you know, in your work, you situate, Pike in the history of ideas at kind of the intersection of two great and, might I add, extremely Bay Area movements and sort of how we think about being human, the psychedelic and the cybernetic. Um, And how would you how did his work sort of reflect those sort of currents of thought at at that time?
3: So there's a fascinating uh, piece of writing. Pike wrote a, a number of sort of poetic manifestos, often quite short. Um, And there's a fascinating one where he specifically writes about psychedelic drugs. Um, And he doesn't seem all that enthusiastic about psychedelic drugs. He writes about them as somewhat dangerous, Um, but he sees them having this sort of radical potential to uh, make the individual a sort of complete experiencer. So he talks about how the art world separates the creator, the audience, and the critic. And there are these distinct roles. And he talks about how somebody engaged in a psychedelic drug experience is in a unified role. They are the creator and the experiencer, and maybe there is no critic. Um, and uh, he's interested, and I think this is sort of one of, of the sides of the play. Um, He's interested in art experiences where people are the creator and the experiencer and one of his motivations for um, being involved in the development of new kinds of video instruments, the, the Pike Abe video synthesizer is something that also appears in the exhibit that he he built with a Japanese television engineer, Shuya Abe. Um, this is something that that someone can take and they can make their own art and experience it themselves rather perhaps than, than making it for an audience. And that's something he sees as distinctly psychedelic, that, yeah. that unified experience. Um, The cybernetics question is maybe a bit trickier because there is a version of, for for Pike and many other video people, a version of cybernetics which is also about, uh, very similar, that uh, feeding back the self
0: putting oneself
3: on a monitor and then seeing it and creating a loop that way. Um, But there's also a sense of cybernetics um, for Pike and many other video artists that's about creating a more tightly interconnected society about everybody seeing everybody else's perspectives on the world. Um, And this also becomes a sort of motivation for trying to turn television from a broadcast medium where there are only a few entities, a few businesses, a few networks that can produce television um, to a medium that is much more widely participatory and in which there are many more creators. Yeah. And,
4: you know, cybernetics was once uh, one of the dominant modes of of thinking about sort of um, human consciousness and technology, focused largely on, you know, feedback loops, this idea that, you know, um, human beings are constantly sort of um, taking in signals and, and processing them. And so the idea that you could see yourself was an obvious way of sort of thinking about feedback. And Rhonda, now, of course, we spend so much time looking at ourselves. We spend so much time caught in these cybernetic loops with ourselves. I I wonder how your students actually encounter this uh, this work when they're so used to some of the components, which were at that time very new.
2: Yeah, thanks. I think that's a really good question. I You know, walking through the exhibition, I was thinking, you know, what would Nam do with TikTok? It just feels like such (laughs) kind of like an integral medium. And with my students, he's one of the video artists that, you know, they, they attach to, and I think for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, part of it's like cultural identity, but I think a lot of it is also... While the students are used to the signal, they're not necessarily used to the objects of like screens, right? So seeing a big box TV for them is totally new. They don't know that you know they don't understand the electrons kind of are like moving through space and like hitting a screen. So it's it's really taking what I think they think of as like an impermeable surface, the screen is impermeable surface, and kind of exposing the guts. And that gives them a lot of freedom to start playing around with. Uh, TikTok, you know, like where are the points of entry? Where can they break into TikTok or or other types of social media or screen based
4: experiences? You know, I want to know when you first encountered Pake, like in in sort of (laughs) what era was it and, and what was the impact that it had on you as an artist?
2: Yeah, you know it's funny. Your, you know, and your your pre-producer kind of was asking me this, and I was like, oh gosh, I remember seeing it was TV flag. So he he made an American flag out of TVs and used uh, a multitude of images to kind of compose the the image of the flag, but also kind of was alluding to the fact that. The identity of or American identity was necessarily kind of wrapped up in in the television, but also in in the way that we kind of think about ourselves being seen. Um, at the time, I was fifteen. I was at the Hirshhorn in Washington D.C., and up until that point, you know, art for me was like Monet or Van Gogh, and to see this wall, this like massive stack um, of televisions, like I it was this cognitive dissonance. It was both so thrilling and exciting, but it just broke open what art could be for me. And I think it was like like that moment where I was like, oh, I'd always been praised for my ability to render, but here's this other thing that kind of spoke about everyday experiences Um, and use the material of the everyday, like using a television. For me at that time, you know, it seemed super novel, although it had been happening obviously for, I think, you know, that piece was from 1996, but I think, you know, his first video pieces in SFMOMA are obviously from the 60s, so like (laughs) decades before I was even born. But, you know, I think, I love that SFMOMA is doing this show and I love that there's so many people seeing this work because I think for a lot of people art seems as you said, like like separate from from the audience, that it's this totally separate thing. And um, while he's using really conceptual ideas and you know very much kind of embedded in philosophy, the work is also really funny. Really, yes. yeah, as Coach is saying, like super punk rock and like totally accessible
4: yeah. uh, at the same time. We're talking about Namjoon Paik's legacy and new SF MoMA retrospective with Rhonda Holberton, an artist living in the Bay Area and an assistant professor of digital media art at San Jose State. Peter Saxkolipi, a university archivist, and Kota Izawa, another artist in the Bay and a professor at CCA. Have any of Nam June Paik's work stayed with you? Do you remember your first encounter with videotape? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Namjoon Paik's art legacy and a new SF MoMA retrospective with Kota Izawa, an artist living here in the Bay Area and an associate professor of film at CCA. Peter Sachs-Kolopi, a university archivist and historian of technology. And Rhonda Holberton, artist here in the Bay and an assistant professor of digital media art at San Jose State University. Um I want to talk about a couple specific pieces at the SFMOMA retrospective. Um, the first is called "Random Access," um, and in this case, um, I think this is actually Peter's wording. Um, Peck has uh, torn up, has opened up the literal black box of the tape, um, and has sort of tacked it up on the wall. And then a sort of operator, uh, as I understand it, it, used to be any participant, but now it's like a A person at the museum sort of has like a tape head and they go around and they put this tape head that sort of plays the tape on the wall. Let's hear uh, just a, a tiny bit of what this might sound like. So I wanted to um, first get sort of Peter's reaction to this, and then I, I, I'm going to get the artist's sort of take on sort of uh, viewing or, or seeing or hearing uh, experiencing this, this piece of art. Go ahead, Peter.
3: Thank you. Yeah. So one of the themes in Pike's work, as as Rhonda mentioned, is the materiality of the media that he's using. So a lot of his work really calls attention to the specificity of a cathode ray tube television that now seems antique but was was exciting at the time. Um, and was current at the time. Um, and this is an early work that does that with audio rather than with video. And so perhaps it's particularly suited for radio. Um, and it does that with audio by uh, taking the tape that would go inside of a cassette um, or that would be on an open reel uh, tape player earlier. and. Um, instead of treating it as something to be sort of spiraled around itself inside of a cassette, um, it treats it as just a straight line on the wall. And that, of course, isn't as easily playable. Um, and by, uh, by giving uh, any participant in the, original, um, in the original version, as you mentioned, by letting anyone control the playback, You can play it as fast or slow as you want. You can play it forwards or backwards. You can sample bits of several different sounds in sequence. Um, And uh, this sort of shows what's really going on when a tape player is working. Mm -hmm. Um, A tape player seems so predictable and uh, consistent and um, almost like a machine that we can ignore and we can just focus on the sound itself um, because of its engineering. But uh, if it can be sort of taken apart, um, we can turn it into something that's a much messier technology. And a lot of Peg's work was about sort of creating messy versions of technologies that are ordinarily quite disciplined um, to see what else they could do that isn't usually what's intended by their designers. Kota, what was your reaction when you you saw this?
5: Um, Yeah, it's, it's one of the pieces that, there were many known pieces to me in the show, but this one I hadn't encountered before. I didn't see it in action like you uh, just played on the radio, but I was also struck by it as, a, um, you know, as a drawing and mm-hmm. like using electronics to make a drawing. And that's also one of the parts of Pike's Over that I find so uh, key that he makes a connection between video and, drawing and painting and sculpture that it's not video um, you know uh, closer to this linear form of television and cinema that we're so used to and so yeah I, I see it as kind of a beautiful electronic wall drawing
4: it's true because it's really when it's laid out on the wall in the in the way that it is in the SF MoMA it it is just a drawing. Like if you didn't know it had any functionality, it has aesthetic appeal just on on that level. And I actually found um, shooting video of it being played. I It, it was also beautiful uh, up close as well. Um, Ron, you know, I wanted to talk with you about this particular piece of work too, because there's, in, in your work, there's also this sort of Sense of translating energies, translating frequencies. Um, is this something that you feel like you learned from Paik or do you think this was had just been sort of in the uh, in the air um, during the time when you've come up as an artist?
2: I mean, I would love to say that you know I came up with <laughs> this concept on my own, but no, I think yeah, absolutely not. It it reminds me of a piece that stands out to me that you know many of the works that I I most closely identify with you know with Nam's work um, are super ephemeral and there's a a piece that he did called listening to music through the mouth and there's one of the great things about the show is that there's a ton of ephemera from these kind of actions and performances and things that don't last very long but in this piece he's taken a record player, just opened it up, and then he's constructed some kind of tube, like hollow tube that he sticks in his mouth. And at the end of it, the tube is a, a, a needle that would normally play the record. But instead of like running the signal through an amplifier, which is how you'd normally listen to a record, he's actually biting down on this tube and transferring the signal directly, the vibrations directly from the record into his teeth and then into his eardrum. So this insertion of the body into the machine in a way is very much like that kind of random access where the the body becomes the performer, becomes the machine that amplifies or creates, you know, the signal. And that resonates. Yeah. I've done some pieces with like VR and doing VR Reiki and kind of inserting, you know, human (laughs) energy, which is, yeah, like that kind of like, I think that irreverence too, like on the one hand, there's lots of, components of Nam's work that are very spiritual but also kind of you know will quickly turn itself on its head and then it becomes quickly and I think that 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 kind of holding both things at the same time I definitely learned um, from
4: from looking at Nam's work. Well and I think that there's you know probably the most famous piece that's in the show and, and one of uh, Pake's most famous works overall uh, it's called TV Buddha and uh, which is sort of Closed-circuit TV is focused on uh, a Buddha figure, uh, which is then looking at itself in a small screen. Um, and one of the interesting things about it, you know, when you see it in a in a book, you might just think like, oh, this like calm, contemplative work. When you see it in person, what's everyone doing? They're all taking selfies with the Buddha, trying to see themselves um, in the screen. And I, I, I wonder... Um, How you see, you know, people when they push themselves uh, into a work like that, um, whether that changes Pake's work itself, you know, how you feel about that, Rhonda?
2: I think in the earlier works a little bit, but at the same time, like if, if you go to the exhibition kind of towards the end, you see these more explicit references to like self and image like cameras that are pointed at the audience in a very kind of like when you stand in front of these, you know, a a certain piece, I forget the title of it, but it's three cameras looking at you and then you're kind of on a screen and you're projected. Um, It feels very pointed and almost, um, I don't know, like not threatening, but kind of like the cameras become like an instrument of like surveillance. And I think it, you know, that might not have been something that he was intentionally thinking at the time, but I think definitely the later works, he's, he's, he's kind of talking about self-representation and image. And there's a great piece that's a TV chair and the screen is mounted under the chair and kind of looking up through a clear seat. And, and then a, a, a closed you know circuit te- uh, camera mounted above the chair. So like if you sit in this chair, you're kind of you're closing a loop so that the top of your head is now being displayed up to your bum. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's just like, it's so lovely, but also this kind of like, like referencing of, of like this internal process of meditation is necessarily almost kind of like navel gazing, but also kind of expanding out. And so that when I say he's holding both of those things at, at the same time, it's like, it's kind of pokey and kind of critical, but it's also like fun and funny and, you know, um, yeah, I guess irreverent is the best way to say that.
4: Let's add in uh, Eric from Oakland uh, into the conversation here. Welcome to the
6: show, Eric. Hi, I'm really enjoying this discussion because I think it really starts to talk to where art is starting to meld with how society can manipulate this kind of work. I'm in my 50s and we started out when I was a kid watching television, seeing movies and having no way to capture them or control them. Today's uh, artists are able to capture and take items that people have made and rearrange them and then they become the creators themselves, where back then the technology was out of our reach. We weren't sophisticated really enough to understand it. And now I think it's so refreshing to see people using this as an art form where you know, painting and, and sketching has long been, you know, things people did in sculpture. Now, this is a very young medium, but it's amazing to see how people are using it and then interacting with it as we have a, a culture that interacts with selfies and taking their own images and kind of uh, moving them around. So I think it's an exciting exhibit to, to hear about and want to see.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Kota Izawa, um artist here in uh Professor at CCA, your process maybe on the surface might seem less influenced by someone like Paik. Can you talk about how you make your work a little bit, and then how you feel like it it does or does not uh, show the influence
5: of, of Paik? Yeah, I feel <laughs> Eric, who was just on the air. Did yeah, that was a plan, wasn't accurate it? <laughs> description of what I do. So I, I grab things from the internet or in earlier days from VHS tapes and uh, manually recreate them and then put them back out as videos that are projected and uh, put on monitors, uh, not unlike uh, Namjoon Paik. Yeah.
4: So you actually, you know, in one of your famous works, you have um, these the protests uh, that NFL players were undergoing, like actually, you know, kneeling... Led initially by Colin Kaepernick um, so you'll just you'll find video of those moments and then you're you're redrawing digitally you're doing it in watercolors like a little more detail
5: yeah so yeah uh, this is a fairly recent piece here describing uh, which I did in the years 2018 and 19 uh, following the protests of NFL players um, during the national anthem uh, playing before football games and I found these. Snippets of um, players doing these protests on the internet and then downloaded them and collaged them into a larger piece and then redrew everything in uh, first on the computer and then transferred it to paper and painted it in watercolor. It's a very painstaking and lonely practice that takes months and months and Uh, thousands of hours and in the end I had like a two-minute video that has been shown in um, art museums throughout the country and beyond.
4: What is that process of translation from sort of an iconic media moment to your art? What do you think it does?
5: Um, I think it kind of reflects uh, so I feel you should ask people who actually saw the video what it does, because I'm so close to it, I sometimes don't even know what my work does anymore, but in a way I feel it kind of creates both a distance and a closeness to the image. We're so used to seeing these images many times a day on our devices, and then to see them remade in a kind of manual form, in a, like in a watercolor painting. Gives you kind of a a new look at them or a new experience of them, mm-hmm. and I feel it gives you a kind of more personal experience of the of what's seen than if you encounter it on your uh, daily news stream. Yeah. we're
4: talking about Nam June Paik's art legacy and a new SF MOMA retrospective with Kota Izawa, a local artist. Uh, an associate professor of film at CCA, Peter Sachs, Colopy University, archivist, head of the archives and special collections at Caltech, uh, and Rhonda Holberton, an artist. Have any of Nam June Paik's work stayed with you? Do you remember your first encounter with videotape or you know other sorts of early uh, electronics? Give us a call now at eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. That's eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Um, Peter, I wanted to come back to you for one more bit of uh, historical context, which is a lot of the work is made possible, essentially, by technologies that were developed uh, for the military. And Paik really, you know, I mean, Korean War is this huge spark for uh, the development of electronics right here in the Bay Area uh, and and used by the Department of Defense in what was a, a really brutal war. And yet you don't really see a ton of that in Paik's work, like the sense that this is actually an outgrowth of the military-industrial complex.
5: Yeah,
3: I think that's right. I think that the um, the sort of social impact of technology for Paik is is an optimistic interpretation, right? So you um, you see him um, thinking about video, thinking about television as a way for everyone to see each other, for everyone to come to a sort of common understanding. Um, he's uh, very enthusiastic about concepts of global community. So um, the phrase information superhighway is a phrase that Pike uses before anyone else does. Um, and Um, The idea of a sort of shared experience of all of humanity um, is very vivid, um, particularly in some of his later work where he starts working with satellites and literally trying to get television signals around the planet. And um, so that sort of possibility of this technology to create new forms of peace seems more imminent in his work than the origins of a lot of this technology in more violent contexts. Um, uh, the, a lot of the television technology that shows up in his work was developed during World War II um, for guided bombers and other kinds of, um, other kinds of aerial military technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that that's a theme that shows up all that much, um, really in, in early video art generally, not just in Pixon. work.
4: Yeah, and I want to talk about this through one of his other works that's in the show. Um, it's called Sistine Chapel, um, and it's this massive room at SF MoMA uh, in which there are projections going everywhere. I mean, we're talking like little loops and clips uh, of uh, of different video from all over uh, Pake's career, all over the world. And it also has a, a pretty remarkable kind of soundscape to it. And you've got this world that Peck has sort of created that actually kind of feels almost like being on Twitter, being on TikTok, these decontextualized, recontextualized uh, video clips, which, of course, we know also support these massive business bottles of the technology industry. And so, Ronda, I wanted to ask you, when you're when you're using these technologies like VR and other things that you know also support, say, surveillance, you know, in China or surveillance capitalism here in the U.S., um, how do you how do you think about using those tools?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And one of the things that actually surprised me about, well, Sistine Chapel, it's it's overwhelming, but it also overwhelming in a sense that isn't just retinal, which is I think our normal experience of Twitter or online, but it's like super bodily focused. and I, I ended up getting a little nauseous and having to yeah. like stand up and walk out of it. Um, But I was also surprised there was, you know, it was kind of in one of his other video installations. He's always, you know, kind of like remixing his own work, but also remixing cultural uh, artifacts from other cultures. But there was this little clip that I, and I couldn't find, you know, the source, but he's got the, you know, one of his famous pieces is he works with a cellist, but he has the cello on his back and he's kind of dressed up like a Vietnam, uh, like military. um, And he's, Kind of crouched on the beach and he's like you know kind of pulling himself along the beach with this cello on his back and it was the first time I saw anything that looked like an overt reference to, uh. to the kind of military um but now I, I think you know obviously with most technologies it would be hard to kind of find a, a history that didn't involve you know <laughs> <FERPA> <laughs>
4: funding in some yeah. capacity
2: right so I again I, you know like I I think
4: Oh, I think we might have to leave oh. it there, Rhonda. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, we've been talking about Namjoon Paik's art legacy and SFMOMA retrospective with artist Kota Izawa and Rhonda Halberton and historian Peter Sachs. We'll be back with more Forum after the break.
1: We've all got those parts of our house where the Internet just won't go.
4: Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, why do we sweat and why do we spend billions annually on products to mass perspiration, yet also relish the sweaty catharsis of gyms and saunas? We'll talk with Sarah Everts, whose new book is The Joy of Sweat. Plus, Yamish Alcinder reflects on White House politics and her recent move to the host chair of PBS's Washington Week. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org slash forum. And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum.